Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. The Sermon on the Mount. It is the greatest single sermon ever preached. We know that because it was preached by the greatest human God-man that ever lived. That is Jesus Christ. It was all done in one setting. It was and is the most epic message ever delivered by any person. Now, over the years, we've had the privilege of going through the book of Matthew twice, verse by verse. One in more of a survey, uh, when we used to do our Wednesday night, uh, we called them care groups. And then uh, once on a Sunday night here, we went through a little more intricately. But never have I just slowed down and really concentrated on the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm not sure how long this uh, series will take. We'll have some uh, things in between, like Christmas Sunday and other things. And maybe in the month of January, kind of do what we usually do in the book of Revelation. But we'll continue on throughout. And uh, five chapter, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew... Although it's also in the book of Luke, we're going to be concentrating on those verses. And so tonight, we're going to begin, uh, excuse me, this morning, we're going to, I'm already thinking about tonight. But uh, this morning, we're going to talk about the first two of the Beatitudes, or Beatitudes as some people call them. The Beatitudes, happiness is realizing your spiritual poverty and godly mourning. Jesus came to bring mankind happiness. He really did. Jesus came to bring every man, woman, and child blessings upon blessings upon blessings. He doesn't mind if he just pours blessings on you. He came to make life richer and full and meaningful. All of those are the things that Jesus wants for us. And yet, those are things that require some prerequisites. Eight of them, including the other things that we'll be talking about through this sermon. But eight specifically that refer to the subject of blessings or happiness. And that's what Jesus sets forth here in these principles. You would think after all of the advances that mankind has made, I mean, just think technologically. It wasn't but just a few years ago the internet came along and uh, then uh, all the things that have come from that and technologically I mean they're now talking about artificial intelligence. <laughs> That's kind of what I feel like I have once in a while but anyway um, we, uh, we it's amazing what is happening technologically. With all the advances medically mankind has made and yet socially, folks, we are not very advanced. In fact, frankly, we have regressed, I think. And if we could go back to uh, first century there and sit on that mountainside, that beautiful Galilean 
a little foothill there overlooking the Sea of Galilee, the Valley of Jordan right there. If we could do that, and that's what we're looking at today, the Sermon on the Mount. I think that mankind, I think the here in the, the year that we live, never has there been the message of the Mount needed anymore. And it's my earnest prayer that some great good will come from this. Hopefully more than the little boy I read about this week. A little boy asked his dad, Dad, did you go to Sunday school every week when you were a kid? His father proudly replied, I sure did, son. The little boy responded, I'll bet it won't do me any good either. <laughs> well, surely that's not us today. All right, we're going to get good from this message and from this truth. I hope it'll be good for you. Let's all bow our heads. Father, thank you for this good word, the good truth. May we have good minds as we receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, introduces his sermon with probably the most cold open that there's ever been. No folksy chit-chat, no humorous story. Jesus just blows right into the message. He basically looks at everybody. I can just see him now. He comes in and he sits, the Bible says. That's the form that a rabbi would teach. It is the form of a judge, a sitting judge. This is the most solemn moment. I can see him looking off each group, looking at the children's all huddled there, looking at the moms and dads and everybody. They had heard about this man. Who was he? What was he going to say? The religious false religious crowd over there kind of snickering and kind of glaring at him. The Roman soldiers were over there kind of wondering what was going to happen next, what were they going to have to check into. And the multitudes were there, and then there was his faithful disciples. Jesus begins with this dramatic cold open. How many would like to be happy? They all look at him. Really? I would like to be happy. You would like to be happy, Benjamin? Well, how about you, Elizabeth? Yes, I would love to be happy. Did you know you're not going to be happy because your crop is good this year? Did you know that you're not going to be happy because you have a happy marriage? You want to know what makes you happy? So he's baiting them in. Yes, tell us. He said there are eight steps to being happy. And I'm going to share those with you right now. I mean, they were just eating out of his hand. Jesus was telling them. And it was powerful. He looks at them and he says, these are what has been called the Beatitudes. You say, why do they call them the Beatitudes? Well, that's because there are attitudes that ought to be in every Christian. The Beatitudes. Now, the first one in verse number three is, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I'm going to kind of interpret that a little bit and maybe bring it to maybe a little more understanding to our poor minds. Number one, happiness comes to those that realize their spiritual poverty. Blessed or blessed. Makarios is the Greek word. 
Actually, that's a name. In fact, you go to Greek, Greece today, you'll even find people called by the name of Makarios. Supremely blessed is what the word means in the Greek language, fortunate, well-off. Happy is actually what the word means. And uh, for an old right-wing Baptist preacher getting up and telling people how to be happy kind of feels a little funny. I feel like that guy down in Houston there. But um, the fact is God does want us to be happy, and that's not a problem. That's nothing wrong and shameful in saying that. However, God wants us to be happy his way. It is a deep inner happiness. Not one produced by outward circumstances, but by inward blessings of God. Therefore, it is from God. The very word blessed means from God. Now, I know it's pretty common today to have some rich heathen say, yes, I've been very blessed. No, you're fortunate maybe, or you know, whatever you want to say, but you're not blessed because blessed is a God word. That's not a secular word. Makarios is a word from God. It is meaning God in his favor gave you a blessing. Now, God in mercy reigns on the just and the unjust, yes. But in favor, God blesses people. This is a conditional blessing, God says. It is reserved for those who have these eight attributes. Now let's look, go back to verse number one for just a moment. And seeing the multitudes, he said, I better go up into the mountain. So he kind of goes up a little bit. And when he was set, or he sat down, his disciples came unto him. As I mentioned, this message is to the disciples. And yet he's willing and very ready to allow others to listen in. It says a multitude. How many people were listening to Jesus that day? That's a question that came to my mind and apparently it's a question that came to others' mind as well. You might be surprised to know that two New York University researchers actually tried to figure out how many it was possible for Jesus to have spoken to in the sense that they could have actually audibly heard. These two men were in the music and audio research lab of that university, and they replicated an experiment that Benjamin Franklin had done many years earlier for the Acoustical Society of America's annual meeting. So here's the story. In 1730, late 1730, George Whitfield, powerful reformer, great preacher, he stood and preached in Philadelphia. It is said that he preached to a crowd of 6,000 people. Benjamin Franklin had heard that in, while he was in London area, he had preached to over 20,000. Being the quizzical kind of, kind of guy, he thought, I don't know if that's even possible for people to actually hear Jesus. And so he did this there in Philadelphia when he was preaching, George Whitfield, small man, slight of build, but they said he had a voice like a lion. He said he went and he would go back a few feet, kind of coming to the point. He went where he could actually hear. Now they did preach a little different back then. They preached kind of staccato. They preached in short phrases. So he would preach out, Jesus is alive! And then he'd stop for a second. Then he'd preach, but 
That's how they preached. And so that's what George Whitfield did. Benjamin Franklin went out there. Then he calculated the size of the crowd, how far he was from the speaker. And so he guesstimated that actually it was possible, given all the proper kind of uh, uh, attributes, meaning not too much wind, not too much ambient noise, it was possible for George Whitfield and the amount of people, that, I think he gave two square foot for each person, the amount of people that George Whitfield could preach to would be 100,000 people without the source of any electronic amplification. That's a lot of people. Now, if Jesus was preaching to 100,000 people, it was possible. That's what they were trying to point out. Now, it was also possible because there certainly was enough physical space there. Now, I don't know that there was 100,000 people in all of that area, so I doubt if that many were there, but there were likely thousands of people in that crowd. It was a lot of energy, so they could hear. Whether they were listening, that's another question. And here he begins to say that you need to follow these eight principles. Now, Dr. Warren Wiersbe is a great Bible teacher. He gave us what I think is a neat insight on the Beatitudes. He said, if you look at the Beatitudes, why Jesus started with the first one, the second one, you will notice that they are actually sequential and progressive, meaning this. First, you have to be poor in spirit. That is, you have a right attitude about sin, which then automatically leads to a mourning over sin, verse number four. Once you mourn over sin, then you begin to seek and hunger for righteousness, which manifests itself with mercy. And then, as a result of that, you will have a pure heart. And as a pure heart, you'll be able to be a peacemaker. And if you're a peacemaker, Finally, unfortunately, you will not be a very loved person and you will be persecuted because you are so unlike the world. And so this beautiful progressive Beatitudes. Now, my plan is to try to take two of these uh, principles a week for the next four weeks. And we're gonna divide it up each way by explanation, examination, and exhortation. So let's look at verse 3. In fact, let's read it again together, if you would. Verse number 3, Matthew chapter 5. Ready, begin. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now ex explain that, first of all. Number one, let's explain that. And that is the first thing that should happen for anybody seeking the blessings of God, kingdom blessings, is that we would lose our worldly pride and we would become poor in spirit. Poverty of spirit is what this is talking about. It is the door into the kingdom of Christ. It is very low and only people who come in are crawling in on their knees. What does this not mean? Number one, it does not mean material poverty. Number one, it does not mean material poverty. Some religious groups have the idea that in order to be spiritual, you have to take even a vow of poverty. Uh, sometimes I wonder if we've taken that, but a vow of poverty. They kind of bless that, excuse me, they base that loosely on Luke chapter 6 and verse 20, which says, blessed are the poor. Not poor in spirit, but just blessed are the poor. 
their false premises, these false teachers, however, that you can't be godly and have money. That's just simply not true. First of all, there are all kinds of poverty that that verse might talk about. Blessed are the poor. You might be poor in education or poor in friendships, but God said there's still ways to be blessed. I think the great apostle Paul gave us a great insight about blessings and money. In Philippians chapter four and verse number 12, he said to the church, he said, look, I know how to be abased. Now I've been there, I've, you name it, I've been there. And uh, sometimes uh, at the dinner table, uh, Pauline and I, we had kind of a similar rearing as far as pretty uh, basic kind of humanity, you know. I remember being raised and we couldn't have, could only have one glass of milk a day and it, that wasn't certainly a full glass. And I remember drinking that, just thinking how nice that was. And she'll talk about her rearing and I'll, we'll share it. And our kids are like, wow, that's amazing. Yes, there were some poor times. I know how to be abased. And I know all of you, many people that are my age and older, have had to go through some tough times. Abased. But Paul said, you know what? I also know how to abound. Now, the truth is, many of us can be abased and we can keep our Christian faith. But abounding, having it poured on us, blessing after blessing, financial blessing after financial blessing, and that's really what he's talking about there. You know, I will tell you, that's not as easy. But if God, you need to know this, if God in his mercy blesses you just abundantly, receive it gratefully. You're not unspiritual because you have lots of money or a nice home or a car or all that or a vacation home or whatever. You're not unspiritual. Receive it gratefully, but just always remember, it could be taken away in an instant. Hold it loosely, because God says, I know how to be abased and abound. He said it comes and it goes, it just does. It doesn't mean material poverty. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It doesn't mean being poor spirited, meaning a lack of enthusiasm for serving God. <laughs> Frankly, some people today seems like as a Christian, that in order to be spiritual, you have to go out and drink pickle juice or something. I mean, they're just so negative all the time. Did you know that the word enthusiasm is actually a God word? It actually comes from two Greek words, en, E-N, meaning, of course, in, and theo, like theology, the study of God. Enthusiasm is entheo. It means of God. Folks, a exciting spirit for God is a God thing. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He said, God loves a, a cheerful giver. That's an enthusiastic giver. It would seem like in some churches, people falsely interpret to be poor in spirit, meaning, boy, you don't want to get involved. You know, don't get too enthusiastic about God, folks. You can't be too enthusiastic about serving God. It doesn't mean that when God says poor in spirit. It doesn't mean material poverty. Number two, it doesn't mean poor spirited. And number three, it doesn't mean passive. Some believers have swallowed, unfortunately, a view of grace, beautiful doctrine, which many are teaching today, which basically says, hey, live however you want. There's no restraints in the Christian life which is a gross misinterpretation of the verse in Romans where it says we're all under grace. I remind us what Paul said in Romans chapter five and verse 21. Grace reigns 
through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. How does grace function? Through righteousness, not sinfulness. And so being poor in spirit doesn't mean being passive about the things of God or about obeying the Bible. No, that's not what it means. Now, we've explained it. Now let's examine what it might mean. Let's investigate. The word poor in spirit is the Greek word sokos. It is a verb. It's an interesting verb in that it means so poor, the person is like a beggar. In fact, it has the idea of cowering in a corner. The idea is that a beggar, you know, kind of puts stuff all over their face and kind of hides themselves because they're kind of ashamed, don't want people to see them or know them, and they're begging for alms. God said, that's what, I, that's what you need to be in your spirit. You need to be a beggar. You need to be a cowering in the corner, not out of an unhealthy fear or condemnation, but a sense of real healthy respect. I, I am so bankrupt when it comes to anything good in me. I am destitute. God, I bring nothing to the table. If I'm going to get to heaven, it's you, God. The beloved physician, Luke, in Luke chapter 23, gave a powerful example. And I use this example so, so often. In fact, I think at least once or twice a week over the last couple of uh, months, I've used it with different people I meet, wherever. I'll usually say something like this. I said, hey, you know, I'm a pastor and always interested in people's spiritual journey. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard of the sinner's prayer? One man said, uh, remind me. <laughs> and uh, he was saying, you know, yeah, I know the Bible, but remind me. I, I, I didn't get quite that one. And I said, I'll be happy to. I said, it was a thief on the cross. Now you remember Jesus was there. He was crucified unjustly. He was there and they nailed him to that cross. But you may also remember that there were actually two other crosses. That's why many times you'll go by churches now, three crosses, or you'll see three crosses, different places. The idea, it's a powerful, uh, really, symbolism. One thief, proud. And I usually emphasize that. Proud, didn't want God, didn't care about God, chasing the dollar, didn't care about God's word. I mean, just nothing about God. In fact, railed on Jesus. If you're the son of God, you would come down from the cross. Just, just a bitter guy. The other thief, not so much as lift up his eyes to heaven. Verse 43. He looked and said, remember me. Please. Here he is. Can he get down off of that cross and join the church? Nope. Can he go get baptized? Nope. Can he give anything? Nope. There is nothing that's going to help that man. He is moments from death. How is it possible for that man to go to heaven? How is it even possible? Mercy. Mercy. And he looked at Jesus. Jesus. Please remember me. When you come into your kingdom. Kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Today. 
You're going to be with me in paradise. You're going to be with me there. Can you imagine that thief? If there ever was a shout, and if he could have shouted, he would have, unbelievable, you would save me? After all I've done, after all the hatred I've thrown your way, you would love me that much? At the last second of my life, you would do that for me? Yes, it's called mercy. It is the sinner's prayer. That's poor in spirit. That guy, proud in spirit, didn't get a thing. You talk about blessed are the poor in spirit. That thief on the cross, nobody is a better example of one who got the blessings of God from a poor spirit. The great apostle Paul, I think, clarified, powerhouse apostle, clarified this even more in Romans chapter 7, verse 18. This verse is a great verse for all of us. I think you need to know this verse. I hope you do. I know that in me, that in my flesh, that is my, my human flesh, which includes all my thoughts, my values, not just my physical desires, but my values, my lifestyle, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me. I would love to serve God. I would love to do the right thing. I would love to obey the Bible. I would love to pray. I would love to do all the things. But how to perform that which is good? I find out. I am clueless to how to serve God and obey God. I am absolutely clueless. Oh, the poor in spirit. That's the kind that God blesses. Those that say, I don't know what to do. It's pretty much a joke, I think, in most offices that if you want a computer fix, don't ask anybody, you know, over the age of 40. Just ask somebody who's under the age, and that's the way pretty much goes around here, too. We're like, I don't know. Now, we have a few brilliant older ones in that area, but not many of us. And so we're like, boy, I bring nothing to the table. If it's going to be fixed, it's on you. Thank you. That's what this man was saying. Jesus said to all these people, he said, the hardest thing you'll ever do, why this is number one, is admit you can't do it. I can't. That's hard. Especially for rugged, tough, I can do it, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, Americans. I can make it happen. Guess what? You can't. These billionaires, whatever, don't think that's going to get you to heaven. Nobody in my flesh dwells no good thing. And Jesus was looking at people who were very poor and some who were probably just uber rich. And yet he said, you know, you're not going to go to heaven unless you get poor in spirit. You've got to come to the table like this. I don't have it. I can't do it. Now look at the last part of this verse. There's not anybody else's. Not you, Abraham, not you, Rachel, not you. Nobody gets this unless they are poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven. Now, some people have misinterpreted this little part of the verse, saying that, well, this is talking about the millennium. In fact, I've even heard some people who go off on this radical grace stuff that Jesus can't be trusted in the Gospels because he was an operating under the Old Testament 
ideas. Oh my goodness. Boy, when they start talking like that, I'm like, you know what? Just go, go on, get out of here, because I'm about ready to punch you in grace. And uh, don't tell me that Jesus can't be trusted. Just don't go there. I'm just telling you right now. But anyway, they've said, well, Jesus here was talking about the millennium. What? Okay, so here's Jesus. Let's get this picture. He's there talking to these people. They're hanging on his every word. Folks, if you will be poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom of heaven. But of course not yours because this is not the millennium. But someday during the millennium, it could happen. But not you because you're not millennium people. But then when they, bleh, you really think that's what he was saying? And I know he wasn't saying that because the eighth beatitude is blessed are you when people persecute you. Uh, stop. Nobody's going to be persecuting Christians during the millennium. God is going to be ruling with a rod of iron. There's not going to be any crazy governor in California during the millennium. I'm telling you right now. You're saying, are you calling our governor crazy? Well, I wouldn't do that. No, I'm not nice. Never. No, the fact of the matter is, the kingdom of heaven is something that is now. You'd say, well, what is the kingdom of heaven? Let's talk about it broadly and let's talk about it narrowly. Broadly, it is an eternal, sovereign God who rules over the universe. Like Nebuchadnezzar finally got it when he declared in Roman, or excuse me, Daniel 5, uh, 4 and verse 3. The kingdom of heaven is an eternal kingdom. So broadly speaking, it means God reigns. Okay, That's the kingdom of heaven. Narrowly speaking, it is a spiritual rule. Broadly, it's an overall sovereign rule. Narrowly, it's a reign of Christ in my heart. I can have the kingdom of God when I act biblical. Then I'm bringing the kingdom into my marriage, into my finances, into my health, so forth. For example, Paul said in the book of Romans, chapter 14, the kingdom of heaven is not meat and drink. It's not, that's not what we're talking about, although God is over that. He's talking about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. So it's an inner rule of God in my life. Now, Russia and China now, I understand, is leading in the developing of hypersonic missiles. They fly so fast and so low at speeds up to Mach 6 and an atmospheric ballistic trajectory that is so low that it's undetected by the normal means. It is just changing the way the defense systems of the world. America's trying to catch up. But I will tell you this, that the weapons of Jesus' kingdom are not hypersonic, but they are hyper-effective what are these weapons? They're rakes and brooms and listening ears and open hands and generous hearts and emptying wallets. Jesus' idea is we destroy the weapons of Satan by bringing the kingdom of God into bringing good works and the good gospel into the lives of people around us. That is the greatest hypersonic weapon of all. And that's what he's telling us for this morning. God wants us to examine this. Now, number three, the exhortation. We've explained what it's not. We've examined what it is. Now, the question 
How do we become poor in spirit? Number one, you read the word. Simple, simplistic maybe even sounding. But folks, when I immerse myself in the word, I'm not talking about reading a daily bread, one verse, going on my day. Not, I'm not against that. I'm for it. Go, go for it. Amen. But I'm saying we got to do a little more than that if we're going to develop this poor in spirit. Because the more I'm in the word, the more I really see myself. The Bible calls itself a mirror. And when I see myself in the mirror, I'm like, whoa, that's some interesting stuff. I went into the bathroom the other day, and our bathroom has one of those little dial lights, you know, that you can kind of turn up way high. I always keep it kind of low. You know, it's nighttime, and I mean, I'm not acting like I don't want to see myself. I wouldn't be that. But, um, but anyway, I walked in there, and my wife had been doing her makeup. And I mean, it looked like an operating room in there. And uh, I looked in that mirror, and I thought, whoa, who in the world is that? And uh, I do not like to see mirrors like that. The Word of God is a mirror. It shows us like we really are. Read the Word. Listen to the word, sing the word, memorize the word, quote the word, put it in the, on the walls in your house and beautiful pictures, put it on your phone and prompt you during the day, put it in your little cubicle there. But everywhere you turn, you should see the word, see the word, immerse yourself in the word. And when you do that, the more you'll realize how needy you are. When we realize how needy we are, then we say, I need you. And that's why we read the word. Number two, simple, but not only read the word, pray to God. Why pray to God? Because a beggar, we're poor in spirit, a beggar is always begging, praying. That's actually what supplication means in scripture, begging. There is prayer that's asking, but then there's supplication, begging. Well, I just don't believe you ought to be begging, folks then you don't understand what God wants. God likes a begging spirit because a begging spirit is a poor in spirit when it says, I'm bankrupt. God, like this morning, I said, God, if I make it through this day, it's going to be you because I am so needy this morning. Oh, God, I need you. Now, I put my time in. I mean, I did. I promise you, I put my time in, not only in study, but in prayer. I put my time in. But I'm telling you, all the preparation and the years, the, the years of preaching and all the ministry, it means nothing because today I am bankrupt for the power and the blessings and the mercy of God. I am poor in spirit. And I hope you are too. The hymn writer maybe said it best. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Happiness is to those that realize their spiritual poverty. Number two, happiness comes to those that mourn in a godly way. Now folks, Jesus is going to stop the crowd. He is going to. Stop the message at this moment. I mean, he, he breaks the internet with this. He stops and he said, looks at them all. He just gave them this one. Blessed are those who realize their spiritual need. Now, he said, you are going to be happy when you get sad. What? 
I mean, the Pharisees just belly laughed and I'm like, what? Come on. What kind of gobbledygook craziness is that? And then Jesus said these words. Read it with me, please. Verse number four. Ready, begin. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. I'm going to tell you, folks, Jesus dropped the mic on this one. You talk about a new approach to doing life. To have someone stand up and say, you need to learn how to be sad before you'll ever be happy. If you want the blessings of God, you have to learn how to mourn. I bet you these people were so surprised. Maybe like the smiling woman who was greeting a surprised pastor as she left church one morning. Pastor, all my life I've heard pastors say they were sinners. <laughs> but you were the first one I really believed. <laughs> surprised, I'm sure he was. These people were surprised when they heard Jesus say, you've got to be sad. What does it mean? What does it not mean? Let's explain. Number one, it doesn't mean illicit sadness. Number one, it doesn't mean illicit sadness. Some human weeping is not good. When a person mourns, for example, because they can't satisfy their lust, those are the tears of an unmet evil desire. A good example would be Amnon in 2 Samuel chapter 13, who wept and carried on until he became sick, psychologically Maladjusted. Why? Because he was lust sick. He wanted to defile his own sister Tamar. Today it's gotten so ridiculous. Some people won't even fill out an application. Because they're in the, they come to the gender section and it triggers them. Oh, there's only binary choices there. Well, folks, that's because there's only two choices when it comes to sexes, I'm telling you. But that doesn't mean illicit sadness. Number two, it doesn't mean general sorrow. Now, as part of human experience, we suffer sorrow. It is very normal, and actually, it's a gift of God. If you shut down our ability to offload our emotions, you know, we couldn't weep. If we couldn't, you know, wail or whatever. I mean, if we couldn't do that, folks, we would, we would pop. It is a built-in pressure valve. And for sure, I will say this, for me at least, I agree wholeheartedly with David in Psalm, I think it's 34, when he said that God is close to the brokenhearted. I don't think I'm ever closer to God than when I have a broken heart. It just draws me to the Lord. And I hate that about myself because I wish that I could say I am the closest to God when I'm on, you know, millionaire's row. I want, but the fact of the matter is, we're so human. Now let's examine what this means. Greek scholars say that there are nine different words, verbs actually, speaking about mourning in the New Testament. This actually is the strongest of all of them. It counters that, well, yeah, okay, I've you know, okay, I'm sorry if I've done something wrong, kind of, it counters that kind of attitude. First of all, it is the mourning of a grieved heart. It is the mourning of a grieved heart. In the ninth chapter of Jeremiah, we find the prophet called, given a ministry that nobody wants. I'm not signing up. 
Your job is to go tell everybody they're blown it. Your job is to tell them that all of this could have been avoided. We didn't have to go into Babylonian captivity. Just so you know, we are in this situation because of your sin. Wow, really positive message. And God said to Jeremiah, you're going to punctuate the power of this message with your eyes to be a fountain of tears. And look what it says in chapter 9, verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slaying of the daughter of my people. I believe mourning means grieved. Are you grieved over the sin of our country? Are you grieved over the sin in your own family, maybe in your own life? Number two, it is the mourning of a concerned heart. In Acts chapter 20, the great apostle Paul met with some Ephesian pastors, and he talked about this kind of mourning. In verse 31, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. He said, look, I put so much into this ministry. I have invested so much blood, sweat, and tears. I do not want to see this thing go out the window. Please guard against these wolves that want to come into the church. And so he was begging them. He was praying night and day. It's the morning of a grieved heart. It's the morning of a concerned heart. It's the morning of an imparted heart. That's what Ezra sang in Psalms 126 and verses 5 and 6. Ezra, the great Old Testament scribe that collated the Old Testament scriptures, he said, those that sow in tears, sowing scripture with tears, verse 6, go forth, you have to go, weeping, you bear the precious seed of the gospel, Thank God you'll come rejoicing, bringing your sheaves with you. Like the old hymn, kind of mocked anymore, but a great hymn, bringing in the sheaves. The Bible reminds us that when you impart the gospel, that gives you a heart for people. You heard Pastor Mike say when he was here, my heart just goes out to Muslims. I love Muslims. You know, when you begin to share the gospel with a Muslim that listens, your heart does go out to them. It's an imparted heart. It is also a devoted heart. In Luke chapter 7 and verse 38, a woman with a past came and stood at Jesus' feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet. That alone is, wow, washing a bunch of uh, some old, dirty old feet. But notice what she did. She wiped his feet with the tears and her hair, she wiped his feet and then kissed them and then anointed them with this beautiful alabaster box of ointment, which was given to people, which was a first-class treatment of those who were guests. For the first time in her adult life, a man that didn't abuse her, a man that didn't use her, a man that didn't hurt her, a man that forgave her for the first time. No wonder she knelt and kissed his feet and said, I, I didn't think it was possible to be this free, to be this clear, to be this forgiven. Oh, the shame. Every day, everybody would mock her and make fun of her being that kind of a broken person.
But here was the first one that ever said, God will forgive you. God will take care of you. It is the morning of a devoted heart. And finally, it is the morning of a repentant heart. And I think this is the main thing that Jesus was saying. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 10, the Apostle Paul helps us to understand this. Surprisingly, he says something that, again, kind of breaks the mold. Godly sorrow does something. It works repentance to salvation. And that's what you want. You need to be sorry for your sin. Now look, folks, I'm all for giving people hope. But we must not ever paint sin as not being a problem. Folks, it is a big problem. It was sin that put our Savior on the cross. It was my sin that put him on the cross. It was yours. And God said, if you want to have blessings, you need to mourn. You need to realize it was your sin. In fact, I'll go as far as to say that at some point in your life, if you have not had a broken heart over sin, then it's very possible you were not saved. You're not a Christian. Now, that being said, we won't put any particular emotional experience on anybody. I mean, some people are broken and you'd never know it. Other people, you know, wail like babies. But the fact is, if you have never felt sorry for your sinful life, then it's very possible you do not know Jesus as your Savior. Because it is that, that sense inside that, I don't know, and I hate that feeling. I'm telling you, I hate it. I hate it. That convicting feeling of doing something wrong. That's what David said in Psalm 32 and verse 3. When I kept silence, my bones became old through my roaring all day long. When I refused to own up to my sin and when I refused to say that I had done wrong, it tore me up. It ate my lunch. Do you know why mourners are so blessed? Because they know they are forgiven. The rest of the world, not them. And they're just drinking away their, you know, problems and drugging away their problems and buying stuff to bring it down and going here and going there. And I mean, anything to calm that gnawing inside of them. You're, you are sinful. That beautiful God-given Holy Spirit of conviction. And they just don't want to listen. By the way, this phrase, blessed are those that mourn, the, actually it's in the linear tense, meaning it's the durative, meaning those that continue to mourn. It's not a one-time mourning when you got saved, although that's, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but it is a continual sense that maybe you have done wrong. And why is it so wonderful? Because all of a sudden, you get the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. John 14 says, I will pray that the Father shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. The word there, comforted, for he shall be comforted. 
Is the Greek word parakaleo called alongside? It's the same word for the Holy Spirit. Why is it that mourning over sin brings such comfort? Because Jesus said, just like you came to me for comfort, there is another comforter, the Holy Spirit, that will come to you as you mourn over your sin. Exhortation. What should I do? Number one, cast off conceit. Cast it off. The Apostle Paul weighed in on this. The great John said, if we say, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And I, anymore, it would seem like the modern church is like, no, don't talk about sin. You know, you'll offend people. And, you know, we don't want to, you know, drive people away, folks. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And by the way, you're not deceiving anybody else. I will tell you that. And you're certainly, I'm not certainly not deceiving God. And the fact of the matter is truth's not in us. And if truth's not in me, I can't be happy. But if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I've heard some crazy people say, well, you know, that verse is not for Christians. I'm like, what in the world? They say, no, you should never be sad about your sin. You should just know that you're positionally okay, folks. It's kind of like the man that came down to the altar and prayer counselor was there and the man came down and he was trying to get peace with God and he said, you know what, I think I'm a Christian, but he said, I, I just think there's sin in my life. I just need some help. So that counselor showed in 1 John 1, 9, if you'll confess your sins, he's faithful. if you'll agree with God that it's wrong, he'll cleanse it. He'll make a right standing with you. You know, you'll have that wonderful fellowship with him. And so he said, all right, good. And so the counselor said, just pray. So that fellow started praying. Oh, Lord, if we have sinned today, the counselor stopped and said, hey, stop, wait, wait. First of all, there's no if. You have sinned and I have sinned. And second of all, you need to confess. It's not if we have sinned. It is you, friend. And the fact of the matter is, folks, we do need to have our cleansed heart. You'd say, how do I do this? Cast down conceit. And number two, put away parties. Now, I'm not saying don't go to parties, obviously. We have a large family. We have lots of birthday parties and other parties. We, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about a party brain. Folks, there are some people that just do not want to deal realistically with life. To them, it's all about party. And unfortunately, and I don't want to throw the millennials or the, you know, the mosaics or Gen Z's or whatever, whoever they are, I don't want to throw them just under the bus here, but I will tell you that raising up where all we do is play games, all we do is go to college and get involved in all the parties and then do this, folks, that party mentality, it is. The, and by the way, it seems like a bunch of boomers doing the same thing. I mean, out there just living, smoking dope and going here and shacking up with everybody. I mean, this is crazy. Life is a party, folks. It is not a party. Jesus said we need to cast off that kind of mindset. You know, there's one whole book in the Bible called Mourning. It's called Lamentations. We don't ever teach out of Lamentations because a little too hard on the modern generation. Jesus, excuse me, David said in Psalm 119, verse 136, rivers 
of water run down my eyes. I felt a little prick in my conscience. It did a little bit though, but I put it off. Bravely, I pushed off against that conviction. No, rivers of water run down my eyes because they keep not thy law. What is weeping? I just think it's the weeping of Jesus over Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19. It's weeping over souls. How often I would, but you would not. By the way, that's a pretty good verse for those in this world. Jesus wills, but will you? I would that they would come, but they would not. Frankly, that's the verse I feel so often as I look at this world. Jesus wants them to be saved, but they would not. How could we not but weep? I close with two stories. Well-known Scottish theologian, one of the great reformers, John Knox, constantly carried a burden for his land. Night after night, he prayed on a wooden floor, a hideout there, a refuge from the ruthless Queen Mary, Queen of Scots. His wife even pleaded with him, Honey, get some sleep. And he answered, How can I sleep when my country is not saved? In agonizing tones, his wife wrote that he said words like this, Lord, give me Scotland or I will die. And God shook Scotland through the prayers and preaching of John Knox. In early America, one of the greatest missionaries was David Brainerd. David Brainerd actually didn't even live to the age of 30. He was an early American missionary to the Indians. Back in the day when they would tell Indians and anybody, if you don't have Jesus, you are not going to heaven, friend. You, the great, you need the great one, the creator, Jesus. And David Brainerd preached and loved those precious Indian people. Here is an actual excerpt from his, his devotion he said, I set apart this day for prayer. In the morning, I felt the power of intercession for more immortal souls. In the afternoon, God enabled me to so agonize in prayer that I was quite wet with sweat, though in the shade and the cool wind, my soul was drawn out for the world. Christ is what this world needs, and it's what we need. Would you stand with me, please? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Our worship team is going to be coming this morning. There's a great chorus that we sing around here. It is Christ is all I need. This morning, we've covered a lot of ground. We've gone a lot of places. But the end of the day, it is that. Christ is all we need. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.